My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Tings Chak. How we experience spaces and places is just as wrapped up in power and resistance as everything else in life. At the level of the nation, the power invested in borders keeps some people out and lets others in, and in a wide range of ways marks those who are admitted for different levels and kinds of harm and vulnerability and violence. And at the scale of our everyday lives, buildings and landscapes are shaped by and can help to enact social relations. To name a few examples, the form of houses and communities across North America reflect dominant assumptions about what makes a family, churches and mosques often embody principles of the faiths to which they are sacred, modern cityscapes are organized by and around the political dominance of fossil fuel industries and the private automobile, and solitary confinement units in prisons are a cruel crystallization of the violence of the carceral state. Canada's immigration system, notwithstanding all of the liberal hype about its supposed gentle virtues, embodies both of these things. It excludes broadly, and it does various things that marginalize many of those who manage to enter, thereby organizing violence into many lives, and it makes use of power translated into built form to realize some of its least savory outcomes. Take, for instance, people who are undocumented. In Canada, that mostly doesn't mean people who entered the country without documents, though that situation has been in the news lately with refugee claimants fleeing the Trump regime in the United States. Rather, most of the estimated half a million people in the country without status arrived with some sort of temporary status, built lives and families and communities here, and were subsequently prevented by the system from regularizing that status. They were pushed by the system into being undocumented and into all of the risk and fear that comes with that. For many undocumented people, any interaction with an official or a service provider, including the most basic of services that the rest of us use without a second thought, is an opportunity for their lack of documents to be discovered and reported to federal authorities. This can result in detention and deportation, upending lives and causing incredible hardship. And when deportation is not possible, that detention can drag on for years and years, despite an international standard that calls for immigration detention to be no more than 90 days, Canada detains migrants indefinitely, without charge or trial. And this coercive power over the lives of migrants is in part enabled by the built form of the facilities in which they are detained, both specialized immigration detention centers and maximum security prisons. Tings Chak has been trained in architectural design, and she is a migrant justice organizer, an artist, and a writer. She's the author and illustrator of Undocumented, The Architecture of Migrant Detention, a graphic novel-style account that draws on both the author's research and her experience in working with undocumented people and migrant detainees during her time as a member of No One Is Illegal Toronto and the End Immigration Detention Network. The book both, quote, documents the banality and the violence of the architecture, end quote, and works to highlight, quote, the stories of daily resistance among immigration detainees, end quote. 
Originally produced as a zine and then as a limited print-run book, it will be re-released with additional content in the next couple of months by a new publisher, the Ottawa-based Ad Astra Comics. A recently completed and highly successful crowdfunding campaign has financed the republication, and all royalties from the book are being donated to the End Immigration Detention Network. Chak talks with me about undocumented people and immigration detention in Canada, about the politics of migrant justice and prison abolition, and about undocumented, the architecture of migrant detention. We spoke by Skype to phone from South Africa. Hi, my name is King Chak. I am the author and illustrator of the graphic novel called Undocumented, the Architecture of Migrant Detention. I'm originally born in Hong Kong, China, and immigrated with my parents at a young age. So part of what informs this book has to begin with, you know, thinking about migration and experiences of migration, not only within my lifetime, but the many generations of migration that my family has experienced. Though we came as landed immigrants and were never undocumented ourselves, there is, I think, a migration experience that informs how we think about belonging in Canada, how we think about who has the access and the rights and the status as an agent, as a person in a place like Canada. And then so for the last, say, seven years or so, I've been actively involved in migrant justice organizing, grassroots organizations like known as Legal Toronto, and later on in the forming of the End Immigration Detention Network in 2013, coming on the heels of a large mobilization led by immigration detainees where they went on a hunger strike. Nearly 200 people went on a hunger strike protesting their conditions and then later protesting their indefinite detention. So a lot of what the book touches on is informed by experiences, both personal but political in the sense of the organizing that I was a part of. And at the same time, around 2013 is when I was finishing up my studies in architecture, which up until that point had felt quite disparate and separate. But as I began to think about spaces of confinement and incarceration in the prison industrial complex, I started thinking about architecture in a different way, and particularly the complicity of architects and just people who profit off of incarceration of individuals, be they migrants or otherwise. In Canada, there's an estimated number of 500,000 undocumented people, most of whom are in the greater Toronto area. What that means in terms of numbers is that undocumented people are in all of our communities. They work at the restaurants that we go to. Undocumented people, you know, are part of raising our children. Our friends are part of our communities. It's amongst us and part of our lives, part of our communities. And one common misconception about how one becomes undocumented is around crossing borders. Of course, in this current political moment, we see in the media about the thousands of people who are actually crossing the border, you know, post-Trump election. But typically, that is not the way that people become undocumented in Canada. They aren't coming into the country undocumented. Rather, they come in with immigration status, whether they apply for refugee status, whether it is that they came as visitors or students or sponsored, for instance, spousal sponsorship. So people come in with immigration status. And when they are unable to regularize or make permanent that status, then they fall into the risk of becoming undocumented. This includes also you know, the hundreds of thousands of migrant workers who might work here years and years and years, 
but never have a chance at permanent residency. And so if their contracts get terminated or various legislative things, they also can become undocumented essentially overnight. So that's a bit of the context of how people are undocumented and the scale of the issue. What happens for someone who is undocumented or has precarious immigration status? It means that at any given moment, just living life, daily life, there is the fear and the risk of detention and deportation, whether you're going to a library to try to apply for a library card, which seems like the most innocuous thing to do, could be a possible site of a border checkpoint if people are asking about your documentation and your immigration status is found out. It could be going to a shelter or a food bank or, you know, going to school, a public school. All these kinds of sites could be possible sites of detention and deportation or lead to detention and deportation. Some years ago, there were some women members of known as Illegal Toronto, and they were able to go into the Toronto Immigration Holding Center, that's the detention center in Toronto, and at that point it had just been opened. And so they went in and they posed as art therapists to sit with the women and children in there to hear about the stories. And over several months of going in to do these art sessions, the women started asking the women and children, what is it that's the biggest difficulty of living undocumented in Toronto? And the recurring theme was fear. People felt fear in being able to go about their daily life. And some of the examples that I mentioned, like a, you know, a food bank or a shelter, these are real people's experiences of having been denied access and then arrested and some detained and deported subsequently for just trying to get the basic access. And so they identify that fear, that daily fear is being an integral part of their lives, controlling their lives. And so that's what came out of that is the idea of access without fear, as an access to the essential needs of life without fear of detention and deportation. And the many, many years that followed after that of organizing is what led to the first century scheme in Toronto in 2013, pretty much a decade plus of organizing. And now we hear a lot more about sanctuary schemes today used as somewhat of a PR stunt, but it came from that very grassroots, very much direct lived experiences of people fighting for access. It just kind of details how great the impact can be on people's lives for simply not having the right papers or the state not recognizing your place here. Talk more about the role of detention in Canada's immigration system. So officially, immigration detention is considered under administrative law. Unlike criminal law, immigration detention can be likened to not paying your parking ticket and getting, you know, possibly a fine. What you're dealing with is administrative law. So you don't get a charge, you don't get a trial, you don't get a sentence. Yet at the same time, it's prisons, maximum security prisons, as well as detention centers that are being used to enforce the administrative law. So someone who's in immigration detention can sit in a maximum security prison and the state can say, oh, you're not being punished. You're just being held for administrative purposes while the state is in the process of deporting that person. But that administrative holding in the maximum security prison could be 10, 11, 12 years. It's indefinite. And this has happened to people that we have organized with. So under the state, it's an administrative law. It's an administrative holding of people. And in some ways, immigration detention, according to to the government, it's supposed to be used as a last resort when no other measures can be taken. But with the hundreds of people that we've come in contact with that have gone through immigration detention, 
it is clear that it's not a last resort, but oftentimes a first resort when people are first coming in contact with the law. And from a more public safety level, of course, what we're hearing when we hear about public safety is we're already criminalizing immigrants. We're already associating immigrants with criminal behavior without even thinking about how criminality is a construction that primarily targets poor people, black people, brown people, racialized communities, people working for sex workers or who are drug users, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that's a whole other discussion we can have about what is it, constitutes crime and criminality. But I think the government uses immigration detention as a deterrent, trying to deter people from whether it's entering the borders or from staying on past whatever legal status they have. So it is a kind of control by fear mechanism as well. And one more thing I want to add, of course, at the end of it, there's a profit-making component because there are private contracts, whether it's security firms like G4S or Garda or the private contracts around managing and maintaining these immigration detention sites or even the contracts of renovating or building detention facilities, that is about channeling public funds into private hands. And there's a lot of people interested in profiting off of detention. How did you initially decide that you wanted to produce a, a graphical account of immigration detention? I didn't plan to make a book. As I mentioned before, I was studying architecture, interested in detention, interested in the sense of trying to investigate at which points that architecture or architects are implicated in the process of constructing very violent structures or to enforce state violence, be it through border fences or prisons. So I was looking into these places and realizing, even while filing for access to information requests for plans or information about the construction, the contracts, etc., nothing came up. In a way, it's quite obvious because these things are intentionally hidden and they're intentionally classified and hidden from public view, not just the documents themselves, but the spaces themselves. Most of these prisons are removed from what we think of a built environment, our cities, urban context, in the suburbs, in the outskirts of cities and towns. So I quickly realized the intentional invisibilizing of these places. And so I realized that there wasn't documentation to use to work from, but rather I began the process of thinking, oh, how can I use the tools that I've learned in architecture school, primarily through representation, through drawing, through representing space, to talk about the violence of immigration detention, talk about the complicity of many hands that are involved in upholding the system. It's not just a story of inmates and guards. It's about who designs prison locks, but who installs, you know, the stainless steel toilets. It's about the master plan. It's about the security camera. It's about every single element that makes up a building used for detention that can be scrutinized. So I began doing these kinds of drawings, these sort of reconstructions based on existing buildings and reconstructing a kind of detention center as best as I could to use that to raise a critical voice about immigration detention. Give listeners an overview of the content of the book. So the book is primarily divided into three sections. I mean, the original edition, now the special edition that's coming out, has additional content as well. But the main section of the book has three parts. The first one looks at the prison landscapes. So I profile mostly landscapes of where prisons are situated, focusing in Ontario. And these are prisons or detention centers that have been used for immigration detention, as far as I could know. 
that was my way of contextualizing these buildings into a larger environment, a larger geography and, and economic context as well. The second chapter, we go into this sort of fictitious or reconstructed immigration detention and tour through a center. And not in some sort of voyeuristic way, but it's just you're walking through the building while there is a narrated interview that is actually done by an Israeli artist named Mir Avram. And he interviewed an unnamed architect who designed a desert facility in Israel, mostly for migrants crossing from Africa. And the third part is about stories of resistance gathered from people that I, as part of the Immigration Detention Network and known as Legal Toronto, were organizing with. Stories from everyday resistance or defiances of how people are surviving as an act of resistance to really brave and bold acts of mass civil disobedience like the hunger strike of 191 immigration detainees that I mentioned earlier. So that's the breakdown of the book. And at the end, we have an in-depth interview that I did with a former immigration detainee named Martin, who was part of leading that hunger strike and who was on hunger strike for over 35 days and has been consistently active in not only the end immigration detention network, but in the struggle to end immigration detention. And then at the end, there's also a piece written by fellow migrant justice organizer, Syed Hassan. Tell me more about the hunger strike and the other kinds of stories of resistance in the book. On September 17, 2013, 191 immigration detainees at Lindsay, Ontario's Central East Correctional Center, that's a maximum security prison, they went on hunger strike. And initially, they called for a three-day hunger strike. That grew into a campaign about, well, a goal is to end all immigration detention, but beginning with ending indefinite immigration detention. As I mentioned, people can be stuck in detention for years and years on end with no end in sight, even though they have no charges, no trial, no sentence, simply because the country could not deport them because of various reasons. And so that hunger strike, the person who went on longest was for 63 days. And the End Immigration Detention Network formed out of that as some organizers who had already been involved in grassroots migrant justice organizing heard about this hunger strike which is an historic hunger strike. We've never heard of anything of this scale before and began to organize on the outside in conjunction with the inside, doing actions, coordinating in various cities, getting the information in, getting information out, getting the media that was necessary to the best of our abilities to make it an issue. And from there, they formalized the End Immigration Detention Network with the campaign that has been ongoing around ending indefinite detention by instating a 90-day limit on immigration detention, which is just the basic international recommendation. If Canada can't deport someone within 90 days, then they have to release them. And second within that campaign is the demand to end maximum security detention. A third of all immigration detainees are put inside maximum security facilities. And the third demand is that people who have been held for over 90 days should be immediately released. And then the final one being there needs to be an overhaul of the adjudication process by which people are released or detained. It's called detention review. So these things were the demands that came out of that hunger strike. And many actions have been done since then, and many moves and many kind of developments have happened over these years, whether it be the legal challenges or individual cases or the releases of individuals or, you know, actions that have been coordinated in various cities. What kinds of responses have you had from people to the book? 
it's been an interesting experience for me with the book because it's allowed me to speak to audiences that I, with my more conventional activist hat, couldn't necessarily engage because it's in a comics format, because it has architecture as a thing that it's focusing on. Of course, it's only through the architecture that we're revealing the kind of violence of looking at human beings and the organizing that is happening and the resistance and the call to action, really. But because of that, I've been able to talk to audiences that are less politicized or less already on side or involved in migrant justice organizing, be it students in a graphic design seminar or people who are in the legal field or people who are interested in architecture and design, people who maybe typically do not come out on the streets and do not come out to the actions but are kind of politicized in, in the process of coming to this book. So that to me has been really interesting and I think a useful tool. So I do think about it as an organizing tool. How did the new version of the book that's coming out in the next couple of months come to be? I was approached by Ad Astra Comics, which is a really phenomenal, independent, radical comics publisher. And they've been a big supporter of this project from the beginning. But in its first run, it was a very limited edition, and it was also at a price point that was quite inaccessible. So that was always an issue about how to get the content out there to a broader audience. So when the opportunity came about that they could also publish it, reach an audience through their networks in a different way, also be able to publish it at a more affordable price through this crowdfunder method, it was definitely of interest to me. And I think it's being republished in a good moment, of course, adding more content that I've, in retrospect, wish had been there. What's your sense of the possibilities and the limitations of this kind of politicized, critical approach to thinking about architecture? I'm not the most optimistic when it comes to thinking about the profession as a site of radical politics, though I do think that there have been some interesting examples of people using their professional privilege as a way to highlight particular injustices that the profession is engaged in, be it around migrant worker or undocumented worker conditions in building Olympic stadiums or World Cup stadiums, or thinking about, in the U.S. more specifically, the role of architects in the design and construction of solitary confinement units and execution chambers, which some architects under the banner of architects, planners, and designers for social responsibility have mobilized around and have gained some momentum and a particular voice in the mainstream media that perhaps people engaged in the radical activism cannot have. But in terms of you know something revolutionary, I don't think that's necessarily coming from the architects or the architectural discipline. So from what I understand, one of the important features of your politics and your work is that you bring together migrant justice politics and prison abolition politics. Why is it important to you to do that, to bring those two things together? In the context of more issue-based organizing, oftentimes it's very easy to separate out issues and fight for just the liberation or the freedom of immigrants at the expense of other people. Because if we were to say, oh, immigrants are being detained alongside criminals or they haven't even committed a crime, which is a very common narrative about the you know, deservingness of some people over others, what we're doing is 
we are not showing any kind of solidarity with the people who are being targeted and criminalized by the criminal justice or criminal injustice system or the prison industrial complex. And at the end of it, it's the same communities. We're talking about people who are most heavily criminalized, people who are black, who are Muslim, people who are poor, who are sex workers, and et cetera. So we can't afford not to mobilize together against a similar system that is oppressing and criminalizing and jailing people in our communities. I think that mobilizing around prisons is a way for people to really unite certain struggles. And that's something that we must do consistently where there are opportunities to do so. And similarly, there's been also arguments on the other end when people are trying to do prison justice work where sometimes arguments like how could you know the government treat a Canadian citizen like this as being the point of how to be you know upset or act on an issue. But it's not about their immigration status that is the reason why we should be defending them. It's because they're human beings that we should be defending them. We don't think that people should be locked up in cages for living their lives or because a system is consistently violent towards them then we must defend all the human beings. And so I think uniting Michael Justice to prison abolition, and we have a long way to go, is an absolutely necessary one. So what work do you hope that undocumented the architecture of migrant detention does out in the world? I'm hoping that people will see this book as an invitation to you know, inform oneself, which I think is a duty that we all have, And then through that, hopefully an invitation, a provocation to engage and engaging in various ways where possible, directly joining organizations or supporting organizations or forefronting the voices of those who are in that struggle, the voices of people who are undocumented, who have precarious status, especially now as people are perhaps thinking about migration and immigrants more often. And I I hope that, you know, in the land of multiculturalism and myths like that, that this also helps people think more critically about the stories that we are told and learn through the media, through schooling, et cetera, and the reality that not only faced by people who are immigrants, but just by people who are of the working class, people who are living under, at the end, a capitalist society, even if it, you know, has a nice smile on it sometimes. You have been listening to my interview with Tings Chak about her graphic novel-style book, Undocumented, The Architecture of Migrant Detention, a new edition of which is being published soon by Ad Astra Comics. To learn more about it, go to undocumented.ca. That's undocumented.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.